Welcome to Books and Nachos, a podcast for those of us who find excitement in the pages of a good book. From fiction to nonfiction, graphic novels, and more, we're here to help you find something great to read. Welcome to Books and Nachos, the Venganza Media podcast about everything in print. I'm Stuart in L.A. And this is Jacob of the Nine Fingers, here to talk about the final <laughs> tale of the Ring of Doom. The final, yes, we've spent a month here in Middle-earth, and we've reached the end, Return of the King. Now, I gotta say, right off the bat, endings are tough, right? Particularly ending the trilogies, when I think about classic movie series, I don't know too many people that hold up the third one as the best one, uh, Dark Knight, Godfather, Star Wars. <laughs> I'm sure they have their fans, I'm sure you're out there. But in general, I just think that this is really, really hard because for me, the journey is always more fun than the destination. It's about the saga, the epic sweep of getting there. Once you actually have to like do it, I don't know, it can be kind of perfunctory. And that's what I'm wondering when I'm picking up this book. As excited as I was last week to see all of the plots unfolding, all the tension escalating, I was wondering, can he keep momentum? And I do want our listeners to keep in mind, you know, I talked about this when we started this journey. I never see this as a trilogy in the traditional sense where they're kind of like three more or less standalone stories that tell a larger one. This was conceived as one big book. And you may hear the same reasoning to justify how this whole saga ends when we talk about the movies. But it is something I keep in mind. This is not three stories. This is a thousand page story and i expect some resolution i'll talk about whether i like it here or not but i think i'm a little bit more forgiving because that is my view when i read this book yeah i think that's fair yeah and i can't imagine it can i just add that i can't imagine sitting down and reading this as one for some reason the publisher's instincts i think are right for me the idea of reading one giant thousand page book would be insurmountable. Having it broken up in this way, and each week I'm reviewing a new one, it feels like a breather. They stop at the right place, and I feel like I'm always glad when the book ends, just as much as when I'm picking up the new book. I need the breather. I need it to be a trilogy. I wouldn't want it to be an opus. I think you're more biased than me when it comes to fantasy, but fantasy is not really my thing, so I, I do agree. I took my time reading this. I don't think it's any shock. We did not read this all in a week in between these reviews. We, we gave ourselves a little bit more time, and I needed that time. We're recording well in advance of seeing the movies because partly we didn't want the movies in our head. And yeah, partly because let's take our time through this awfully big work. Now, okay, titles. I get stuck on these. <laughs> I always want to know what it means. Return of the King. They're referring, of course, to Aragorn, who, as far as I can tell, was not the main focus of this story, but is going to become, if not the central character, bigger in scope than he has been in the last two books here. He's reclaiming his birthright. I don't understand the story, Jacob. Okay. <laughs> I'll be honest with you. I really paid attention to him, I thought, and I know that I followed some details, but to me, this is a huge twist here that they are pulling in the third book, that when we met him back at a bar, I thought of him as a ruffian, a Han Solo, if you will. And by this book, he's Jesus Christ, right? <laughs> like he's going into the land of the dead and raising the dead and becoming back this beautific God. I mean, it's such a head spin. Well, I will say this. The first time I read this book, I figured out that they talk about the heir of Isildur so much. Isildur, the 
king who chopped the ring from Sauron's hand, but refused to destroy it and set all these things into motion. I caught on to that. I'm like, okay, he is destined for something. This time reading it, knowing where it's going, I picked those clues up a lot earlier, but I do think Tolkien expected people to have more of a reaction like you, Stuart. He didn't want this called Return of the King. He thought it gave away too much. He wanted this to be called War of the Ring, which, honestly, that's a rad title. Yeah, that's a better title. Sure, absolutely. War of the Ring? Yeah, I want to read that book, but... Return of the King, you're right. It made me prep for it. I, I'm grateful because I really would have been laid out on my ass if I had found out just by reading this story that it would turn this way. But for me, I thought this character was more of a scoundrel than he ends up being. The character that you mentioned, Isildur, he was an elf, yes? No, he was a human. Look, I'm sure we have listeners that are way more into Tolkien than me. I've read through the appendix of this. We'll get there later. There are stories of half-elves, half-humans that that becomes a big deal in the appendix with Aragorn and Arwen, who we barely read about in this book. But there are these these offshoots. I think it talks about it happening three times of half-elves, half-human breeds. I don't think that was Isildur, though. I think they just teamed up with the elves. I could be wrong, but I know Aragorn, he lived with the elves. That's not in the book. That's only in the appendix if you read that. Here's the thing. Tolkien is not a writer. This guy is approaching these stories as mythology. He wants an explanation, a mythology for England. You know, you think of King Arthur, but that's more of a French mythology, really, that England kind of just took over. He wanted something more pure. And so when you read this stuff, we'll talk about some of the writings that came afterwards, too. But he was really approaching this from mythology. And at times, the story does suffer because of that. Well, I, I didn't even touch the appendices. We'll, well, we'll talk about that when we get there. I wanted to just focus on the prose here. And because it's called Return of the King, I was focusing on Aragorn. I had in my notes, and who knows why, I have a lot of scattered <laughs> writings as I'm jotting through this, that the original guy was an elf. And I thought that Aragorn might have both elf and human blood in him, but I, it, it really got very hard for me. I was not, I refused to read Family Trees. When I saw that they had, yeah, all of those lineages, I was like, I'm not going to do that. This story needs to make sense to me. They need to tell that to me in prose. I will not have to read supplemental material in order to understand it. But consequently, I might have had a better time if I had taken that effort. As it is, to me, yes. In this one, it's really about having a Jesus Christ figure come into this, that he really, right from the get-go, he's in a very serious mode. He th does a throwdown with Sauron. He takes that Palantir and stares right into it and is just letting evil know, I'm your dude and I'm coming for you. It's a real badass moment. But it's also really downplayed to me, like... You would almost miss that if you're not really paying attention while you're reading, if you're thinking about what you're going to have for dinner while you're reading that chapter. It's just a, like, quick reference. I expected more. Like, there are big moments throughout this book where I expect more, and they just seem so downplayed. Like I said, I was paying, anytime Aragorn was on the page, I was paying attention to the king. He's returning, right? This is the big deal. So I probably paid a little bit more attention to him than some of the other characters here. He is going to go his own way. He is going to follow this path of the dead. That is because the myth declares it as such, or was this an idea that he was inspired to do? There was this myth that the army of the dead would respond to the era of Isildur, that they had broken a promise in that battle thousands of years ago against Sauron, and because of that, they couldn't rest at peace, and only the true ear could bring them, make them fulfill their promise and fight in battle. 
Okay, so he's doing this not necessarily to get the troops that they need to fight the battle. He's doing it to prove his lineage. If I'm the guy that does this, then I am the king. They also need the troops. It should be said, this book starts out, the Rohirrim, they're riding towards Gondor to help with that war going on with Sauron. Once we get to Gondor, we'll find that there's other little cities that come, but they can only offer 200, 300 troops. And Rohan only has a few thousand riders that they've been able to muster up at this point. They're in desperate need of more soldiers. So I I took it as, hey, we need more people to fight. And hey, there's this convenient army of the dead. And since you're the king, you can tell them to come fight for us. Yeah, they're cowards, basically. Long ago, back when Sauron was a real dude with a ring on his real finger, they refused to fight against him. And they've lived in shame, and I I assume this is some kind of purgatory. And now they have a chance for honor. The king is going to let them have the fight that they refuse to have this time. I I guess you're more inclined to do it when you're already dead. I'm like, yeah, what do I have to lose, really? (laughs) Yeah, there's not much danger there. But again, this is part of my problem. There's a great buildup. I love the stuff when Aragorn is walking through this Valley of the Dead, and Gimli, like Gimli, they're walking through rock, and he's afraid of rock because of this dead and they're afraid to look behind them because there's just these ghosts marching behind them. I I think that there's some great pros there. And then you find out what they do with the dead. They don't even take them to the main battle. They use them to take over some ships. Okay. I use them for the big fight. Yeah, he's rallying these troops. I got to say, given that my mind is preoccupied with the real quest, the whole thing was about throwing the ring in the lava. They don't need to even raise a sword if those hobbits get to where they're going and pitch that ring. I mean, the evil is vanquished the second that they melt the ruling ring. So, honestly, they do better to be in hiding than they would be to try and rally against an impossible orc army. Well, I think they're going on a suicide mission. They call this out multiple times. What they're doing, I actually like this plan. They're there to distract Sauron from looking for the ring. He Sauron knows the ring is getting closer, but... If Aragon calls him out through the Palantir, so he turns his attention towards Gondor and starts attacking them, thinking the king has returned. I mean, there's a great line, a traitor may betray himself and do good that he does not intend. And there's multiple references to Sauron. His evilness is what defeats him. He defeats himself, basically. It's, it's, he gets so focused on all these diversions with Aragorn charging the gates and the battle of Gondor that he takes his eye off of the ring. And that, that is again, when we talk about the destruction of the ring, this is really about evil destroying itself. It's like, if you're good, you just got to be good enough and endure long enough for evil to finally fall. That That's kind of how it reads to me. Yeah, I see that theme playing out in a lot of the storylines. I think really what the Soren dude needed was another tower, right? The three towers. <laughs> if he had two eyes, he'd be fine. No one would ever get to Mount Doom and melt the ring. But yeah, because he's single-focused and because Aragorn, I guess he's a martyr then. He looks into that magic stone and says, come for me, and makes himself the focus that protects Frodo and Sam to finish the job unobserved. Okay, I'll accept that. In reading this, I thought it undermined the battle a bit to know that the hobbits could make it all go away. But yeah, what they're doing is really just buying time. And the group is split up. Not only, of course, is Frodo and Sam off in Mordor, but the other group, the ones that were fighting Saruman, have decided to split up as well. Gandalf and Pippin decide they're going to the capital of Gondor 
ahead of everybody else. And so consequently, they're going to be trapped when the gates close and they're besieged by all the orcs. They're really on the inside where everyone else will be on the outside. You know, when they get to Gondor, talk about duality. You get that a lot with Tolkien, I think, with Lord of the Rings. We talked about it even with The Hobbit. You know, you'd have this one little adventure, and then later on you'd have a similar adventure, but it was on a bigger scale. Again, I see that a lot with Lord of the Rings. We have Rohan, and then we have Gondor. We have the king of Rohan, Theoden, and he is when we first meet him, this crinkly old man, and then he becomes this great king again. Here we're going to see the opposite. We finally meet the steward of Gondor when Gandalf gets there, Denethor, and he's given into despair. He lost his son, Boromir. He still has Boromir, his other son, but he doesn't really love. He's so grieving over Boromir. He's really lost all hope. And we really see a a reverse story of what we saw with Theoden when we get to Gondor. Right. There is no king in Gondor. That's part of the whole myth of the return of the king, is that until that time, the ruler is this guy. And he's psychic or magic or something. He can send out psychic vibrations. He seems to have, he at the very least seems to know things at far distances that he would have no way of knowing otherwise. He has ESP of some kind. Well, here's what it is. Maybe you missed it. It's, again, another quick reference. Early on, when we first meet him, they say he's wizard-like, like he could read minds. Well, eventually he's going to set himself on fire and, and jump off a wall. He had a palantir with him. He was communicating with Sauron with that palantir. And he had given in to despair because Sauron was showing him that they were going to lose. And that's why he never had much hope. But that's why he seemed to be able to read minds because he had another one of those crystal balls. Oh, okay. So that it's all the result of that. I picked that up, but I thought that that was just the evil influencing him. But no, that was Sauron. It's basically, he's in the same predicament that Saruman was at the other tower. That he basically was a good guy that allowed a magical stone to influence him and became evil. Although, as Saruman, he became greedy and wanted the ring. This guy is more just, yeah, despair is the right word. He's given up hope. I mean, I had to laugh. I don't know if it was intentional or not. But when his other son gets injured, he throws like a death shroud over them both and lies down in a funeral pyre and is like, light me up. I thought this is a ridiculous leader. I couldn't believe. I mean, I'm like, what is wrong with this guy? And then, of course, we realize, I would argue, too late that he's under an evil influence. But for most of the time, he just looks like the worst coward. Yeah, and it's also sad the way he treats his one son. He's like, yeah, go out to battle and die. Be a man for once. Here's his son going out to fight the orcs and the Nazgul, knowing it's a fool's mission. But he does it anyway because his father no longer cares about him. There is some heartbreaking stuff, but I do agree. It gets funny when he's sitting there like, we will die like the heathen kings, and he's pouring oil on himself to set himself on fire. I found it comical. I'm sure it wasn't intended to be as such, but it was just so over the top. You're just like, let's take a chill pill here. I mean, who let this guy in charge? This is ridiculous. Clearly, Faramir needs to up his game and put daddy in the corner. But yeah, it is, obviously, we feel for this guy. I didn't pay much attention to him. He appeared in the last novel. He was walking by as Frodo and Sam were going in the opposite direction. I guess the contrast that we see there is that he doesn't take the ring the way that Boromir tried to take the ring from them. That he's 
more pure-hearted, maybe? Because he wasn't the favored son, he's a little less greedy? I'm not sure. Yeah, again, I, I think Tolkien likes to play with those different dualities, and you have the son that wanted the ring, and here's the son that's willing to do his duty, but he doesn't give in to the greed. Right, and he'll live for it. Keep in mind, Boromir died last novel, really the first novel, and now this is the best that Denethor is going to have, and yeah, he basically sends him out to die. I even got the impression that the gate that they're supposed to be fortifying fell into disrepair because this guy didn't do his job as a leader enough and fortify the city that he was willing to just kind of placate Mordor and not really fight for it. He's very puffed up. He's like, we've been holding Mordor off all this time, so the rest of the kingdoms didn't have to fight. But yeah, he didn't do a very good job. He should have asked for help earlier. He should have sent that red arrow earlier to the Rohirrim. He had broken gates, and it seemed to me like if Gandalf hadn't shown up, he would have played ball. He was literally under the influence of the crystal ball. He might have joined forces, or at the very least, played Switzerland and allowed the evil people to camp out as they made their way west. We'll never know. I, I just know that this guy should burn. I'm like, don't light up Faramir, but go ahead and, yeah, strike that match. I have no problem with you taking yourself out of this story. And then there's the matter of Eowyn, which is not to be confused with Eowyn, although I did many times and had to go back and read things in this book and the last book to get clear. Eowyn is an elf, and she was way back in Rivendell, back in the first book. Eowyn is not an elf. She is the niece of the cool Rohan king. Theoden. Yeah. And so her whole issue is she wants to be a shield maiden and not a nurse. She doesn't want to stay back with the kids and the other women. She's a warrior by blood, and she feels like she should join the battlefield, and she's ready to do it, but they're like, nope, you're a woman, you're staying behind. This is a kind of cool conflict. I mentioned before that I thought a lot of these female characters were kind of decorative and not essential. And here's one that finally is willing to fight the good fight. I was happy to see this once I figured out who she was. Here's the thing. Tolkien, I, I think you could criticize him from a modern feminist perspective. There's not a lot of strong women in this story. When we get one, finally, Shelob hits an evil female spider. And now we have Eowyn who, yeah, she wants to be shield me. She, the thing she fears the most is being in a cage. And she's going to have this great victory over the Witch King later but then her story is like no you should be domesticated don't be that tough woman i get a weird arc with her i like her so much until we find out what happens with her and she's not a shield maiden anymore she's gonna pick flowers at Floramir. yeah because at the setup here they're setting her up very clearly to be the wife of the king because strider or aragorn or one of his many names I mean, it kills me how many times people are have multiple names gandalf gets a new name when he gets to oh Gondor. my god yeah mithrandir or something like i'm like who's mithrandir i i can't tell you how hard it is to read this. Saruman's going to get a new name at the very end of the book. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's so tough. But anyway, and like I said, and then my own confusion between Eowyn and Erwin, this was a really tough read. By this point, we have so many characters with similar sounding names and multiple names at that. It's a real struggle. But what we find out in the beginning here is that she has a thing for Aragorn. She's crushed that he's going to go off to the land of the dead. She thinks he's not going to return. Her brother doesn't think he's going to return. They were like, oh, we were planning to fight with you, but okay, go die if that's what you think you need to do. And so she's left to fight with her brother, although in disguise she goes under a new identity, Durnhelm. 
and uh, takes Mary, the the fourth Hobbit, with her. That's all cool, but yes, ultimately, she is not destined for that. Her turnout is quite different. She's going to get injured, and she's going to end up like in the hospice care next to Faramir, and they're going to hit it off. I didn't see that coming. Yeah, and furthermore, I, I don't know. Tolkien, it seems like he's trying to set up a love triangle, is it, with Aragorn Eowyn and Erowyn. <laughs> Try saying that ten times fast. <laughs> we haven't heard a lot about Erowyn, but we know there's a thing with between her. There's a few mentions. That's whose Aragorn's heart is devoted to. I don't know. It just seems like this false love story. We know it's not going to go anywhere, and it doesn't go anywhere, but there's a lot of time devoted to it. It just seems like something it could have been cut out. Let her focus on Foromir. Let her just get with him. Or just let her fight, because I do think that once we finally get to this battle, and it's about a 100 pages into this story, hers is really the only fight that I can really pay attention to. We get a lot of different fronts. We get a lot of different names. There are horsemen. There are wild men. There are characters coming to and fro from all these different lands. I don't know what's going on. I was skimming. I was skimming till I found a name I could recognize, and then I tried to understand what was going on. This fight is not anything that Helm's Deep was, as far as excitement and gripping a novice fantasy reader like myself. There's even a battling ram with the whole backstory to yes, in this whole yeah. story. It took me a while to figure out what that was. I'm like, <laughs> what is Gorn? But okay, yeah. He's out of control with names. That's truly what it is, is that he feels he needs to give a name to every creation in his world. I don't want to know the name of it. I want to know what's going on, and I want to know what we're to take away from these battles. I want to know feelings. I want to know military strategy. These are the things that are exciting to me. Just having a litany of names, which is what this really becomes here in this last battle, is infuriating. I'm only engaged when we find out that the big bad ring wraith, the lord of Nazgul, the captain of despair, the lord of Beridur, the king of Angamar, I mean, it keeps going on. He has like eight names, but the big bad dude, no man can hurt him. That's why he's taken out because we have a woman in disguise and we have this cool battle here that I wasn't expecting in the middle of a lot of battles I couldn't follow. Here's my thing. Everything gets broken up, like, I'm getting into this battle, you know, there's this whole siege on Gondor, the doors are broken open, the Witch King is standing there, Gandalf's standing there, we're ready for this big, tense moment, and then it's like, horns, 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 is the Rohirrim right in, I'm like, yes! Ready for that next chapter. Nope, now here's the backstory about the Rohirrim writing to the battle and talking to the wild men, these, like, Neanderthals. Ulog say, take this road south, like... No, I want I want to know what follows up. Like, to me, these cool moments where I'm getting really into it all of a sudden get broken up. We get this awesome battle on Pelennor Fields where the Witch King is defeated by Eowyn. And then we're going to go to the hospital. We're going to go to the House of Healing for a chapter. And we're going to watch Denethor burn himself. And then we're going to approach the Black Gates and, like, have another cool battle. They break these things up. Like, I don't know, it loses a lot of momentum for me because he just goes off on these diversions that I don't think really add much to the story. That makes me so glad to know that I'm not alone in this. Because as much as I love that middle battle... Here, this one, I did. I felt like every time I was getting a handle and about to get into the fight, the perspective would change, new characters would be introduced, or things would just be deflated. And you would tell me pages and pages of things I didn't care about, and I'd forget about what was interesting to me. 
Focus is a real problem here. And again, I recognize it's hard to write a conclusion. It's hard to give everyone their moment. He obviously had a lot of ideas about Middle Earth. My instinct would be to leave things out, to edit yourself, to realize you can't get it all in here and give us less characters and more impact. But that's not how he goes. What's weird, that army of the dead, they help Aragorn get some ships so they could sail in at the last minute. And they got the sons of Elrond and some more Dunedain with them. Like, here's characters I'm not reading about in this final battle. Legolos? Gimli? Like, <laughs> they were real important at the beginning. I don't know what happens to them at the end of this book. Even Gandalf. So many major players are nothing now. Gandalf, Gimli, Legolos, even Pippin. I mean, I think it's cool they just become a sentry or whatever. Mary gets one fight with an orc or a goblin or something. But by and large, the Fellowship has been forgotten. They've been forgotten and scattered to the wind so that we could consume all of Middle-earth. And he lose so much by trying to get everything in, by trying to pack in everything that he had thought about with this fictitious land. I thought this was about a fellowship of the rings. I cared about those nine. I don't need to know about horsemen and dogmen and wolfmen and all of that other crap. Well, let's talk about the two that have the ring. Let's go to Mordor. When we left off Sam and Frodo, Frodo, he'd been spun up in Shelob's web and taken by the orcs, and Sam had taken the ring to carry. And we get there, I'm like, great, this is a great cliffhanger. I cannot wait to find out what happens with them. I don't know, Sam runs up and down a tower, all the orcs kill each other. <laughs> he doesn't have much to do except get Frodo, and then they walk a lot. Yes, I'm so glad. Again, I was shocked at how the situation deflated itself without any input, really, from anything. That Sam, okay, he does put on the ring, and he hides in the invisibility, and for a second he seems tempted to, and then he realizes he can't do that anymore. I guess everyone, the test of your character is, what are you going to do? Are you going to want to keep and cover that ring? Or are you going to recognize that it's too powerful and put it aside? That lets us know that Sam is going to remain a good guy here. But yeah, you mentioned this before. Evil destroys itself. If you are a good person, all you really need to do is endure, and the right thing will happen. I don't think there's a character in this story that, if they remain true to themselves and not tempted by the ring, they die. No one dies. They actually, they all survive. Anyone that has been true to their principles, they live, all the way to the end of this novel. And that's a surprise. And that was one of my feelings. I, I wouldn't say criticisms because I didn't have to record a podcast after I read this for the first time. But yeah, one of my criticisms when I first read, I'm like, not enough of the good guys died. Like, it feels like something this epic. There should have been more deaths. More more dwarves died in The Hobbit than die in this battle with millions of orcs and the ultimate evil. And here's the thing. Tolkien, yes, he's a Catholic. And, you know, one of my favorite writers is Flannery O'Connor, who's also a Catholic. She wrote Southern Gothic. And her stuff is always about salvation comes through immense pain and struggle unless you've gone through horrifying physical pain if you read her stories they're actually quite funny most of the time that that's the only way you could realize you're being saved and i see tolkien doing that too and i i guess i associate that must be a catholic thing that you must go through these trials yeah scorsese too yeah it's about the passion of the 
the Christ. You know, it is about enduring it. I did sense that, and it did start to make this feel like a religious parable, both with the return of the king and the concept that no good person is going to die if they remain faithful. The closest to a good guy that dies is Theoden, and keep in mind, he had already been tempted. Last book, he had had wormy guy whispering in his ear, and he had been under the influence, so that didn't really count to me. Everyone else, the pure ones, nothing bad can happen to them. Well, a lot can ba- a lot bad can happen to them, but nothing can ever damn their soul. I do have to say, I was shocked with what happened to Frodo when I first read this. So, they finally get to the crack of doom. There's not a whole lot to talk about. They walk a lot. Frodo is like barely able to go. You get a real junkie feel with Frodo by the end of this. Sam literally is carrying him by the end. But at the end, Frodo cannot destroy the ring and he puts it on and it's Gollum that comes up. He jumps on Frodo, bites his ring finger off and takes the ring off and that shocked me. Like, it is such a gruesome image that Gollum is sitting there biting his finger off to get that ring. But then Gollum just dances and slips and falls into the lava and the ring is destroyed. Evil takes care of itself. And they even call that out. They're like, Gandalf said that Golem would have some part to play in this yet. Yeah, it doesn't make for a very satisfying war story to see your enemies betray one another and, yeah, a tower full of orcs and they're all going to stab each other and Sam doesn't have to do one thing to get Frodo out of there. That Destroying the ring meant basically Gollum leaping into a lava. It's disappointing. Although I have to note, I think it's kind of fun that it's the same story again. If back in the day, Sauron, when he was an emperor sitting on a throne, the only way they were able to get the ring away from him was to chop off his finger. I'm getting that feeling too. I don't know that if Frodo had been allowed infinite amount of time, he would have ever been able to pitch that ring in himself. It was too hard. Yeah, Frodo even calls that out. He said, if Gollum didn't do that, I would not have destroyed the ring. And I do think that is an interesting side of evil, that there is an evil that exists that is so great that no matter how good you are, it will overpower you. You know, one of the things when you're reading these books, and I think Tolkien has been criticized for being perhaps too much of a warmonger or glorifying war, and there's a lot of speeches in these books, you know, preparing for battle and really getting the troops pumped up. But he was a World War I soldier. He saw his friends die, and I, I think what he's getting at is that, yes, there is evil. There is evil worth fighting. It's You don't want to have to fight. That's not the first choice, but there are times you have to when something is so evil. Even if you don't think you could destroy it, you still have to stand up against it. And I do read so much of what happens after the ring is destroyed, and even in that House of Healing chapter, where after this big battle... Aragorn goes around healing people. I do almost see this as a soldier writing about PTSD. I mean, there are soldiers suffering from something called the Black Shadow that they were so scared of the Nazgul. Even after the Nazgul are defeated, these soldiers have like this like shell shock. They, they just slipped into these dreams and they're comatose and they can't come out. I do see him on one side saying, you've got to fight evil. Even if it may seem like total despair, you got to do it. But I never see him glorifying war and we'll get a lot more pacifist stuff at the end of this story. Well, my curiosity is, I know it said it's not like everyone melts. I mean, Sauron dissipates into a big black impotent cloud, but there are still orcs walking around. They just, something happens, Sauron leaves their mind, and now they're in a trance? Yeah, it does talk about, like, how they were in a trance from Sauron when, like, he starts to be destroyed. Like, they all kind of freeze. Uh, The Nazgul, they go riding towards the Mount Doom to try to get the ring. They're destroyed by, like, lightning. And, yeah, a lot of the orcs, they flee and hide, and the armies actually go out 
after him. Again, it's just a few lines. The armies go after him. Some were the wild men or the men from the south or the easterlings, and they were kind of just brainwashed and they're shown mercy. And so there is still battles going on, but a lot have just given up at this point. Yeah, there's no more battles in this story. I gotta say, it's a shocker. I'm like, oh, we're at the end here. I think that Frodo even has a line where he's like, this is the ending. And I turn the page and it says long goodbyes and there's 60 more pages to go. And I'm like, why? Why must there be another half a novel to wrap this up? Yeah, and here's the thing. I like some of these endings. Again, Tolkien, he doesn't focus. He's going to give us an ending for everyone except Legolas and Gimli who get a line. They go to the forest and the caves and check them out. But every, like, yeah, we get the return of the king and there's this whole thing about Aragorn taking the crown and descriptions of the crown. I do love the moment where he tells the hobbits that you kneel to no man, re-kneel to thee. I do love that the hobbits, they are like these mythical characters that have saved the world at the end of this. So there are great moments, but then we get a whole chapter about Faramir and Eowyn and I don't care. I want to know about Frodo. That's who I care about. Yeah, if you're reducing people's stories to lines, then yes, some of these chapters can be reduced to lines. There's no need to give us love entanglements with supporting characters who never did that much. I agree. It would have been just nice to know that Eowyn didn't die on the battlefield. She recovered and wound up with someone else that was in sick bay with her. Great. That's all I <laughs> needed to know. Love it. That's a nice, tidy wrap-up. But this is like 10 pages. What I do like, I think my favorite chapter, and it's, it's not in the films, and you couldn't put it in the films, but the scouring of the Shire. That is my favorite chapter because that really shows what has become of these hobbits. I feel like this story started off with hobbits, and it should end with hobbits, end with the Shire, just as it begun. Let's see what this Shire has gone through. Like, that was the whole motivation for Frodo, is he wanted to keep this evil away from this peaceful Shire. Well, they get back... And it's in shambles. There's men there that have taken over. Someone named Sharky that's in control. Their favorite tree has been dug up. And I like this stuff. You know, Frodo on one hand, again, I get this almost, you know, the Vietnam vet. He's like, peace, man. He, he's seen the horrors of war. He doesn't want to fight. Now, Vietnam had not happened by the time this was written, but that's the feeling I get. But then you get Mary and Pippin, and they've got their full armor on, and they want to fight these men. And surprise, surprise, it's... Suramon, he's still around, like the Ents couldn't keep him in the tower. Yeah, that pisses me off, because Gandalf specifically takes a chapter to go thank them. Why are you thanking them? You let that bastard out, and then he killed everyone in the Shire. Or not killed them, but enslaved them. Burned their tree, and burned down their huts, and yeah, basically just made it a lawless society of slavery. Well, here's the thing, I wonder if, again, I don't know Tolkien's politics and he hated people who would take this as analogous to real world events but i do see ceremony is he whoever was heading the soviet union after the war like they talk about there's the gather and shares but they just gather and they never share and i get this real post world war ii soviet union view of the shire when they return yeah there was a new war to be fought the cold war i think you're right i think that by having this new confrontation, just when we thought we were at ease and that the evil was stopped before it got to the place we wanted protected, that all of that can change under new leadership. I think you're on to something there. And I do like this as well. I would have liked to have gotten to it 40 pages quicker. But yeah, I do like that. You know, in Hobbit, we saw that Bilbo, he saw every place that he had been to before, but it was meaningful because he was a different person 
and we saw how different he was by the way he interacted with it. I don't get that by seeing all of Frodo running into Bilbo again and Frodo seeing all of this. All we needed to do was have him return home. I guess the reason why it has to take so long is we have to give Saruman time to be doing these horrible things. If he had run right home, it could have been stopped. It could have been nipped in the butt. But we have this final sort of a battle of ideologies. And the winner is, again, the pacifist or the person that refuses to commit evil. Frodo could kill Saruman. He tries to knife him, but he's wearing chainmail, and he could have the hobbits gang up on him and tear him to pieces, but he says no. I think he takes a page from the king and from Jesus Christ that turn the other cheek. You know, there's no need to do this. Yeah, and again, it's evil that defeats evil. Wormtongue stabs Saruman in the back after having to grovel so much, he finally stands up for himself and knifes him. Yeah, again, this has sort of become a parable. It has been not a war of the rings, so maybe that was right that they didn't have that title. A war is about two sides committing atrocities to have a greater good, and here there's only one goodness, and if you take that path, Evil will just destroy itself in front of you. And yet there is a toll on Frodo, and I think they're trying to get to this. Because you've had to read so much resolution thus far, I think it gets lost. But Frodo is dying. He still feels the pain from that knife wound on Weathertop from the first book. The ring has taken its toll on him, and he is fading. And so at the end, he leaves. He goes off with Gandalf, and they leave with the Elrond and, and the elves and go to the Grey Havens, which... I don't know, I guess it's some kind of heaven for elves or undying characters. (laughs) Yeah, again, we're not going to have this character die. They could just have easily written it so that when Shelob bit him back there in Mordor, Frodo was dead and Sam had to take the ring the rest of the way. I mean, if the point is, is that some people don't come back, And I think that's what we learn here is that Frodo physically comes back, but he's never the same. He can't enjoy his home, and he ultimately passes on beyond. You could have made that point just as clearly back in Mordor by having him a casualty of war. But by doing it this way, it really does emphasize what I would call a Christian theme. The idea that he's going to be rewarded for all of his pain and all of his suffering, losing a finger and being stabbed and poisoned by a spider, all that he endures, he's not going to be left dead on the battlefield. He's going to go on to some happy place where you get on a boat and it's magical. I don't know where he's going, but I got the sense they keep talking about the end of an age and that the age of humans have arrived, that this is some fourth age that's coming. And so is this the end of mythical creatures? Are they are they all dying out? I mean, Sam is left behind. He's taken a wife. He, life is presumably going to continue on in the Shire, and yet I get the sense that their time is drawing near, that it won't be long before they're all on that boat. Yeah, again, this is a myth that he is writing for England. I got the sense, and it's hard to compare the two. With The Hobbit, it sounded like Hobbits still existed. They're just so sneaky and quiet. They hide before we could see them, and they're not as common as they used to be. Now, that had a very different tone than Lord of the Rings. So maybe Tolkien has moved on, moved past that. But yeah, I think that is the point. It is now the age of man. The elves are leaving. The dwarves are dwindling. And I would assume the Hobbits, too, which is weird, though, because the Hobbits, the age of man, were saved by Hobbits. It's not man it's so much. Yeah, no, and it blows my mind because here's a man that has clearly worked out every blade of grass in an alternate universe only to cast it away. He could write ten more books. He has clearly enough here, and he'll live 
for two more decades. And yet he goes into retirement, he finishes this, and it's the end. I mean, I, I can't believe there are no more traditional novels for Middle Earth, that he just stopped. Yes, traditional novels is the right term, because there is more about Middle Earth. And I'm not going to read it. I am I am vaguely aware of, of the Silmarillion, and it frightens me. Here's the thing. I tried reading it after the first time I read Lord of the Rings. I was so pumped. I'm like, yes, I'm going to read this other book now. I got a few pages in, and I couldn't do it. I tried again, guys. I tried. I'm like, I'm older now, more mature, more learned. Let me see if I could read this. I don't know. There was something about Eu, the god of the universe, and cosmic music, and evil spirits causing imbalance in the music and discordant chords. I don't get it. I don't want to get into that mythology at that deep of a level. I've never been much of a Greek or Roman myth guy. I don't want to do it. The appendix. I did read the appendix, and there's, you know, if you've ever read the Bible, especially the Old Testament, and Seth begat John, who begat Mark, who begat Luke, who begat Billy Bob. There is stuff like that in there, and come on. I don't want to read these genealogical tables. There are people, I get it, there are people that will love that stuff, and if you're that kind of person that wants to live in this other world, recommend it, I guess. I couldn't get through it, but you're probably the kind of person that can, and you'll love that for more casual fantasy fans like ourselves, Stuart. No, it's not for us. Well, yeah, it doesn't sound like a story. Usually when you're creating a world, you have a Bible. And I don't mean a Christian Bible. I mean literally a place where you write all the rules of this alternate universe, and you know everything that they eat and what they grow and what they do and how they cut their hair. And all of that's very important so that you can then go and sculpt a story. Nobody wants to read that Bible. They want to read the story that comes out of that Bible. And they want to know that you know all those details. That's all that I want. It sounds to me like the Silmarillion and, and this appendices, I didn't read those as well. They were more for the author to help him orient what was going on in this world. To me, you got to get it into the narrative or it just doesn't count. Yeah, and a lot of that's, again, you get the whole story of Aragorn and Erwin. That would have been nice to be in the story. That seemed kind of important. They have an elf human child, and she gave up her immortality so she could be with a human like that. Sounds like fantasy-type stuff. You'd want that in your main story. Nope, it's in the appendix, and I would say that's probably the only part worth reading in the appendix. But th there's a lot more about Middle-Earth. Christopher Tolkien, Tolkien's son, did go on, and he wrote more histories, and he kind of took these stories that we've read in The Lord of the Rings and built upon them and, and wrote more books. So there's more stuff out there. If you're into this, I haven't read it. I don't know if it's any good, but it exists. It's out there. But uh, to be clear, it's not a story. It's histories. It's it's things like these appendices or Silmarillions where it's speaking about things in a very high-level abstract way. I don't know about his novel. I, again, he took, he'll took he write about the same timeline as Lord of the Rings, but just add stuff. And I think he took stuff from his dad's notes. He has more epilogues on there. We find out more about Sam at middle age and all the children he has. So, again, it, it's expanding, working off the notes that his father had. Okay, so they do have some of these same characters continuing on in the story. Well, that begs a question, and I wonder if we'll get more movies, or I'll, I wonder if... Someone, it's just surprising to me in this day and age of franchises that we aren't inundated with tons of Lord of the Rings books and tons of spinoffs and Gollum cartoons and all of this. Uh, they really have been careful with the property. They have not milked it too much, at least in print. 
Yeah, I know Tolkien was very protective of it. When we talk about the films on Now Playing, I'll bring up some of the instances where they, about earlier adaptations, and he was unhappy with some of the things they wanted to do with them. But he was very protective of this. And yeah, I think uh, if this was J.K. Rowling, yes, franchise all this stuff out, get other writers, you know, George Lucas, get other people to handle it, and we'd have a Lord of the Rings book coming out every month. Yeah, and I'm so grateful we don't because I'm done, guys. I have enjoyed getting through this, but it has has been a little bit difficult. I'll be honest with you. When I think about this journey entirely, Lord of the Rings, do I recommend it? Pretty much. But I can't say that I loved every second of it. I would love to take some shears to this. I would love to carve one book out of this. No exaggeration. I think you could get 200, 300 pages out of this and it would flow so much better for what I want out of the story. As a novice fantasy reader, as someone that likes quicker paces and that wants to focus on themes and not so much on the names of horses and swords. But I do recognize that this book is in service to people that don't care about story as much and are into the world building and world craft. And I think that's just a an area that I find difficult to go into. So in summation... I do feel like it's worthwhile for anyone to read this story, but I have no apologies for being rather flip with this last novel, for kind of skimming through it, for not getting as much out of it. Truly, honestly, the meat of it is that middle book. It's Two Towers is, is really the best segment of the story, and the ending feels perfunctory, and the beginning takes a while to get going. Here's my feelings. Each of these three books are split into two books. So book one of Fellowship of the Ring, I felt that took so long. There's good stuff in there, but it takes so long to get to the Council of Rivendell, where the story really picks up. And I feel like here we have the opposite problem, that book six of Return of the King, where you get three chapters of destroying the ring and then just all resolution and it kills the pacing for me and book five yeah there's problems there there's exciting stuff there but then tolkien takes a break from it and you're like boring boring skim 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 yeah let's get to the meat here i think that lord of the rings though is worth reading and my th- you know arnie always talks about this homework category this is horror homework or whatever i think and on one hand yes this is fantasy homework i know fantasy as a genre existed before lord of the rings but i feel like this is what made it a genre genre this like yeah. made it a legit thing so i think it's worth reading at on that level but i also think it's a pretty good story and i think there are some good themes there's a lot of weeds you're gonna have to pull you're gonna have to be like sam the gardener here and get through a lot of extra stuff but i i think it is worth it at least to read it one time i'm not one of those people again this is only my second time i know people who read this christopher lee who plays Suriman in the movies. He reads this book every year. I'm not one of those people, but people like that exist. I think I could see why. If you're really into fantasy, this is the granddaddy of fantasy, and I think it's worth a read even if you're not into fantasy. Yeah, I mean, I think Middle Earth is a cool place, and I do think there was a good story here to tell. It's just my instincts are always to reduce, and Tolkien's is always to expand. So I'm going to be very curious, and I think forgiving for Peter Jackson and for the other creators of the animated films on how they're going to tackle this. I do hope you can join us for that. We are done here with Books and Nachos, but of course over at Sister Podcast, now playing, we are having all the way through December our winter donation series of the six Peter Jackson works of the three animated spinoffs 
I hope you're able to donate, listen to those shows. But if not, I'm so glad that you've joined us here just to talk about the source material. And so, Jacob, thank you so much. I feel like I've been Frodo kind of, <laughs> you know, doing this as a labor and you carried me there for, for the last part of this. I'm not sure I could have made it to Mount Doom and finished this book. I am Samwise the Elf Hero. You have. You, you have helped me get through this. But, uh, there will be at least two more books and nachos this year. I will be returning. We are going to be covering Christopher Nolan films very soon at Now Playing, and I will be reading The Prestige, the original novel, his only book adaptation, and then Arnie will be back by the end of the year with Stephen King's The Stand. More Lord of the Rings. Yes, Stephen King said that was his attempt to emulate Tolkien, so if you're a fan of what we've been doing for the last four weeks, please come back and hear Arnie's thoughts on The Stand. I'm sure that will be an epic review by Arnie. I, I, you know what? As long as it's taken us to go through all of this, <laughs> Arnie's review of The Stand is going to be longer. I know it. And it's going to be awesome. So thanks so much for listening. Keep reading. We'll talk to you soon. Thank you for listening to this episode of Books and Nachos. If you enjoyed this podcast, please help spread the word about our show by leaving us a five-star review on iTunes. You can also find dozens more book reviews at our website, booksandnachos.com. The music for Books and Nachos is The Right Prescription by Chai Weapon, which can be downloaded at podsafeaudio.com. Books and Nachos is a Venganza Media production, copyright 2014, all rights reserved, and no part of this show may be reproduced, repurposed, or redistributed without the written permission of Venganza Media Incorporated.